Well, turn with me this morning to Mark seven thirty one through eight twenty six. Mark seven thirty one through eight twenty six. This is where we will consider the wonders of God and His Word this morning. And we've already heard it read. It's a big passage of Scripture, so we read it in in our Scripture readings this morning. Uh, so hopefully, it's fresh on our minds now and our hearts. Last week at our outdoor service, Pastor Will preached on God revealing his glory to Moses on Mount Sinai in a pretty spectacular scene. Smoke, fire, a cloud descending on Mount Sinai. God puts Moses in the cleft of a rock and covers him with his hand while he passes by because if he sees his glory in his face, it will kill him. And so God passes by covering Moses in a cleft of the rock and Moses sees his back. And as God passed by, he proclaimed his name. He said, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It's a pretty spectacular scene and Will really illustrated that and painted a great picture for us. But Will also mentioned the fact that in Christ, we actually behold God's glory in an even more spectacular, and in a more unique, in an even clearer way. Scripture tells us that we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. And so as awesome as Mount Sinai was for Moses, the greatest revelation of who our triune God is, is the man, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, of Galilee who walked this earth 2,000 years ago. And Mark has been making this case as we've seen over and over. He is showing Jesus to be the Son of God, the Messiah, Yahweh in the flesh. In Jesus, we see Yahweh, Yahweh, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And and Mark has been putting this forward for us to consider and and for people in his narrative to consider. And and we asked this question last week. I don't expect us to remember, but we asked this question last week. If this is who Jesus is, what is the correct or the right response to Jesus? And we looked at a pretty long scripture Last week to answer that, we saw Jesus heal the sick again of Sarah, people coming to him desperate for healing. We we saw Jesus speak of the unbelief of the defiled human heart, how there's nothing we can do to overcome it. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves, not the traditions of man, not the teachings of the Pharisees. And then we saw illustrated in the Syrophoenician woman a woman who is outside of the people of God, we saw illustrated in her the right response. Desperate faith. She came to Jesus in desperate faith and received all the benefits of the kingdom. Her daughter was delivered. So this is the right response, coming to Jesus in faith. And we continue to see in Mark the most unlikely of people respond this way. And in in stark contrast to these people who come to Jesus in faith, we see the disciples often standing there, hard-hearted and unbelieving. 
Even though they're with Jesus, they continue to look like an outsider of the kingdom. And so, this leads us to a new question this week. If, if last week we asked, what is the right response to Jesus, the Son of God? This time we want to ask, what is Jesus, the Son of God's response to his unbelieving people when they continue to struggle with unbelief and battle their sinful flesh? And we will see that answered in another long passage of Scripture, and, and we'll see some Jesus go about some pretty, pretty interesting healings. We'll, we'll see two similar healings that have some strange methods, and, and we will see that what Jesus is doing is he's actually revealing more of who God is that we would not see Otherwise, because of our unbelief, he's opening up for us facets of God's beauty in the way he works to save people. So look with me at our passage, Mark seven thirty one through eight twenty six. We won't read the whole thing this morning, but I do want to do some quick groundwork to prepare the path before us. Oftentimes we're taking smaller passages. Last, last time I preached, and, and this time we're taking bigger passages. Sometimes it's good to get into all the details, and then sometimes it's good to step back and, and see the whole forest, right? And, and so I'm compelled to look at it at this whole passage this week because Mark frames this whole passage with two very similar healings, the healing of the deaf and mute man and the healing of the blind man. And we're going to see some of those similarities. And then in between, we see a repeat miracle, a miracle that Jesus has done before. And and we're going to see paired with that, a narrative of the disciples unbelief. That looks like the Pharisees' unbelief. So, two similar miracles, healing miracles, framing this unbelief of the disciples. And what we're going to see is that these miracles of the healing and the deaf and mute and the blind man are actually interpreting and commenting on that unbelief of the disciples. And second, we're also going to read this through the lens of Isaiah. We noted this at the very beginning of this series that Isaiah is the lens through which to read Mark. And we haven't gone back to him at depth lately, but he's always worrying in the background. And so so here we're going to see that Mark aims to show that Jesus is directly fulfilling a prophecy in Isaiah. Okay, so with that groundwork done, here's our outline for this passage. First in verses 731 through 37, we're going to see Jesus, the personal Son of God. Then in verses 8, 1 through 21, we're going to see Jesus, the persistent Son of God. And then in 8, 22 through 26, we're going to see Jesus, the patient Son of God. Jesus, the personal Son of God, Jesus, the persistent Son of God, and Jesus, the patient Son of God. And the main idea we're seeing here is that Jesus personally, persistently, and patiently saves and sanctifies his people. Saves and sanctifies you. So look with me at 731 through 37. Jesus, the personal Son of God, then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis, and they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. 
So recall where we've been, mentioned it briefly. Jesus has just healed the Syrophoenician woman. He's in Gentile territory, people outside of, of, the, uh, outside of the God's covenant people, the Jews, right? And, and he's just healed her and shown that, that all the nations are going to receive the benefits of God's coming kingdom in the Messiah. And this just recalls Isaiah 9, where we see that the land beyond the Jordan, on that land, has, has shined a light. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Or Isaiah 49.6, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. Jesus is bringing God's kingdom and his salvation to all nations, not just the Jews. We saw that pictured in his deliverance of the Syrophoenician woman's daughter. Well, Jesus is not done in Gentile territory. In fact, he's going to go on a tour here of the entire wilderness. And the wilderness, that is not just the desolate place that we see uh, discussed in the feeding of the 4,000 here in a moment, but it, it's actually referring us to all the land beyond the Jordan, the wilderness, outside of the promised land, where God's people, Israel, wandered for 40 years before they came into the promised land. This is where Jesus is. He's beyond the Jordan in the wilderness. And he's going on a tour to show that the kingdom of God is coming to all nations. This is part, partly the reason we read this through the lens of Isaiah 35. We read it in our responsive call to reading uh, at worship this morning. There we read, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. And then what happens in the wilderness? Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame man shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute, sing for joy. Jesus is the Messiah who's bringing life to the wilderness. He heals the deaf and the mute and the blind in the wilderness. And who do the people bring to Jesus? Well, they bring someone who is deaf and mute. Now, let's ask ourselves, how did they even know who Jesus was? Well, we know Jesus' fame has spread, right? But look where they are. They're in the Decapolis, right? When's the last time we saw Jesus in the Decapolis? When he delivered the demoniac. Remember, nobody was strong enough to deliver him. Jesus delivers him. And, and the man begs to go with Jesus. And what does Jesus say? No. But go home and tell what the Lord has done for you. And where was this man's home? Where did he go? The Decapolis. God is always doing more things than, than one thing in this life when he works. God, Jesus, through this man, was preparing his way in this tour of the wilderness. And so they know it's Jesus. They bring to him this deaf and mute man. And I want to draw attention to his muteness. This is another thing that points us back to Isaiah 35. This man is mute. The only other place this word occurs in the New Testament, in the original, or in the, in the scripture, in the original language, is in Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35 and here in Mark. Mute. This man is deaf and mute. And while this is truly 
a physical condition and, and a physical suffering that this man is enduring, we don't know how long. God's also doing more than one thing, isn't he? This points to the salvation that God is bringing in the wilderness. So it tells us that this muteness and deafness, and we will see this more clearly as we work through our passage, is not just pointing to a physical condition. It's pointing to a spiritual reality. Man is deaf and mute, unable to hear God, unable to proclaim who he is, unable to even ask him to do something to help them. This is who man is. This is the condition. And so these people bring this man to Jesus, begging for him to touch him. How does Jesus respond? Taking him aside from the crowd privately, he puts his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Jesus takes this man away from the crowd privately. Why does he do this? Presumably it's with the disciples and, and the men who brought, brought the man to him. But he takes him away from the crowd privately. I had one pastor offer this, what I believe is a really insightful, a couple of insightful things about this passage. Jesus was not going to let this man in his condition be a spectacle. He is not a show for this crowd to see. Jesus takes him away privately, personally. And now we're going to see it gets even more personal. This isn't just clinical for Jesus. Notice the unusual method Jesus uses in his healing. It's led some people to speculate that is Jesus doing some sort of some sort of magical incantation type thing going on? We can toss that out. Okay, we know that's not what's happening. So why is Jesus doing what he does? He sticks his fingers in the man's ears. He touches the man's tongue. What's going on? Well, let's consider the context. It's personal and it's private, right? Personal and private. And let's consider the pattern that we've seen set in Mark. Usually people come to Jesus and with a request, we need help. We see, the, we see his friends making this request here. And then Jesus responds by communicating, by telling them, asking them, touching them. Well, here we can eliminate any kind of verbal communication. This man cannot speak. This man cannot hear. So again, I offer to you another, what I believe is an insightful observation a pastor of mine once pointed out. Jesus is talking to this man in a way that he can understand with a type of sign language. He says, these ears that are stopped up, I'm going to unstop them. This tongue that's not working, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to release its chains. Jesus is personal. The Son of God stoops down to speak to us in our need 
when we could not even verbalize what we need, when we cannot even hear what's being said, and he speaks to us in a way that we can understand and says, this is what I'm going to do for you. Jesus is the personal son of God, and we see it is personal because what does Jesus do? He sighs, right? This is, this is the same word for groan. We see, Jesus sigh, we see Jesus look to heaven just as he did when he gave thanks for the, the bread in the wilderness and blessed the food. It's a prayerful, prayerful moment. And Jesus sighs and groans. This is associated in scripture with the longing to put off the fleshly, temporary, mortal body and to put on the heavenly body. We see that in Romans 8. We groan inwardly, awaiting the redemption of what? Our bodies. We, in 2 Corinthians 5, in this tent we groan, this flesh we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Jesus is groaning and is grieved at this man's physical condition due to the curse of sin and death. He is moved by this man's condition. It's personal. And he's come to personally reverse the curse in this man's life. And with a word he does, his ears are opened. And I mentioned this earlier, uh, just in passing, but... His tongue is released, and and the literal translation of that would be the bonds of his tongue were loosened. I just love that. The bonds of his tongue were loosened like a chain fell off. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. (laughs) So a a chain falls off, and this is what happened. Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute to speak. How humorous is this kind of ironic, right? Jesus heals a man from his muteness and then tells him, don't say anything, <laughs> right? And, and this, I think we're meant to see this in a positive light because what does this man and his happy friends do? They proclaim it. Every time we see proclamation in Mark, It's always associated with proclaiming the kingdom, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, proclaiming what the Lord has done. This is a good thing. So it's, I I think we see a little bit of a positive light here going on. Jesus is saying, guys, calm down. Don't say anything. I'm trying to, I'm trying to reveal myself in my time at the cross and they just can't help but proclaim and say, he has done all things well. The mute tongue in the wilderness, Isaiah 35, sings for joy. So Jesus is the personal son of God. And here we see our Savior. We see that God, we see God personally comes to us in our Savior in our needs, speaking to us in a way we can understand. And Jesus does this for three things, for three reasons. First, he loved this man. There was a man 2,000 years ago who suffered from deafness and muteness, a physical condition that limited his life. And Jesus loved him, had compassion on him, and healed him. Secondly, Jesus does this to fulfill Isaiah 35. He is God who comes in the wilderness to, 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 to unstop deaf ears, to loosen bound tongues. And we also see Jesus does this 
to show how God responds to our spiritual deafness and muteness personally, intimately. And often our response doesn't match these men, does it? Why don't we respond like this all the time? Well, because our unbelief is still persistent. We are still in sinful flesh and we wrestle with it. And so Jesus, the Son of God, is not only personal with us, he is persistent with us. Look at Mark 8, 1 through 21, our second big chunk here. We're actually going to see three parts in this, and we won't spend a ton of time here. But uh, we'll see in verses 1 through 10, Jesus feeds and satisfies thousands, dot, 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 again. Second part. Verses 11 through 13, the leaven of the Pharisees. And third part of this episode, verses 14 through 21, the leaven of the disciples. So look with me at the first part. Jesus feeds and satisfies thousands again. So this is literally a repeat miracle. Jesus has done this before. He's fed 5,000. And there's so many similarities that people have wondered, is this a real account? Is this just an echo account that's been kind of adapted from the original miracle? Well, we know it happened twice by the way Jesus uh, talks to his disciples later, but but here we'll point out the miracle, we'll point out the similarities of these miracles and and take, take stock of those. First, notice compassion. Jesus has compassion on the crowd. They need food, Jesus has compassion on them. Second similarity between the feeding of the 5,000 and this one, conundrum. The people have no food and no means to get any. This is the conundrum. Third, we see this similarity, confusion. The disciples are stumped. They don't know what to do. Imagine that. Fourth, command. Jesus commands to bring the food they have, seven loaves and a few fish, and Jesus commands the crowd to sit, recline on the ground, Jesus blesses the food, gives it to the disciples to set before the people. All eat and all are satisfied. And they take up baskets full of leftovers. Again, the message is the same. Jesus is Yahweh, the shepherd of his sheep. And he has come to bring bread in the wilderness, life in the wilderness. He is the bread from heaven. He is the bread of life. It's unapologetic in its repetitiveness. It's meant to be repetitive. What's the most remarkable feature of this miracle? What stands out when you read this? Is it not the disciples? Is it not their inability to understand what's going on? Jesus says, I have compassion on the crowd because they have seen me, been with me now three days and nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place, here in this wilderness? Does this just not stand out like a sore thumb? How are they so dull? How are they so slow of heart? Well, what we're going to see in what follows, it's their unbelief is persistent. So look with me at the second episode of this bigger episode, the leaven of the Pharisees, verses 11 through 13. After feeding the crowd, he dismisses them, and they they head across the Sea of Galilee again. Now they're back in Jewish territory. And once in Jewish territory, 
Who comes to meet him but the Pharisees? The Pharisees come. And what are they coming for? They're seeking a sign from heaven. And we might think, okay, what's so bad about that? I know the Pharisees, they've been the bad guys, but what's so bad about them wanting to come and make sure this is Jesus, that he is the Messiah? Well, a couple of things Mark points out here tip, uh, tip off that these, these guys aren't coming to Jesus with authentic, genuine, with an authentic, genuine request. Why? Because look at the manner in which they come. They come arguing, debating, disputing with Jesus. And they come for a purpose. They come to test Jesus. They come to test him. This is the same testing that Jesus endured in the wilderness at the hands of Satan. They come to test him. So these Pharisees are not coming to Jesus with a disposition of faith and hope. They're not coming to Jesus in desperate faith, hoping he is who he seems to be. Their minds are made up. They've hardened their hearts to who he is. It wouldn't matter if they saw a sign. And even so, if they had eyes to see, we already know many signs from heaven have been given. In fact, he just fed 4,000 again with bread from heaven. That's what it's pointing to. He fed 5,000 in Jewish territory with bread from heaven. Jesus has done things by his actions all along that are testifying to who he is. But they don't want to see it. So the Pharisees do not believe in Jesus. This is their leaven, unbelief in who he is. We know scripture uh, points this out. Jesus tells the Jews in John 5, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. They want to hold on to their traditions and their 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 legalism and their status and their hypocrisy and their teachings just testify to their unbelief in Christ who has come to correct those things and do far more than that. And so this unbelief is dangerous and just a little bit can do a lot of damage. So Jesus warns his disciples. Look at part three of this episode The leaven of the disciples, verses 14 through 21. Jesus, at the request of the Pharisees, note his reaction. He sighed deeply in his spirit. So if Jesus was moved to sigh and groan at the man's physical condition, who was deaf and mute... We see there with the Pharisees, he's moved to sigh and groan deeply in his spirit, even more anguish at their spiritual state. And so he's moved to warn his disciples of this unbelief. They're back in the boat and they're headed back across the Sea of Galilee to the wilderness area again. And Mark sets the context for us. He tells us, Verse 14, that they had forgotten bread. In fact, they only had one loaf with them. So he's kind of setting the stage for us. The disciples will be thinking about real physical food, and Jesus will be thinking about spiritual food. Verse 15, Jesus cautioned them. He warns them. Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. So... 
you bakers in here probably, I mean, I know you know what leavening, a leavening agent is what, you know, works its way like a yeast that works its way through the dough to rise it. So that's the illustration here. Um, if it, it, just a tiny little bit is very potent. In fact, in kind of my little season of being a hipster bread baker myself, I once made a loaf of bread and uh, I used just a little bit, maybe half a teaspoon too much of the yeast. And that bread, let me tell you, it smelled like straight alcohol and it was inedible. It was horrible. Just a little bit, just a little bit too much. And the way Jesus is saying here, Just a little bit of this leaven of unbelief, sinful unbelief, can infect a whole soul. Scripture tells us of sinful leaven elsewhere. 1 Corinthians 5, 6. Do you not know that a a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Your boasting is not good. Galatians 5. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. This is the point. Jesus is warning about the unbelief that can infect the soul. And, and we've made the case that it's their unbelief. Matthew, the parallel account, tells us it's the Pharisees' teaching is their leaven. Luke tells us it's the Pharisees' hypocrisy that it is their leaven. But all of these go hand in hand with their unbelief. They will not listen to what Jesus says is wrong with their teaching when he corrects them. Because of unbelief. They will not change their hypocritical ways at Jesus' rebuke because of their unbelief in who Jesus is. This is the leaven, unbelief in Jesus. And Jesus warns his disciples. So look with me at verse 16. How do you think they would respond to this? Oh, Jesus, thank you for warning us. Teach us more about this leaven. Please tell us more. No. Verse 16, they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. They missed the warning. I imagine they're looking at Jesus with like a blank stare, saying, oh, he's talking about, we didn't bring enough food. And they start arguing about the food. This is unbelief. Let's count the ways of their unbelief here, right? They've seen Jesus feed thousands twice, and in both instances are stumped with what to do. The second one is even more egregious because they've seen him do it once. Unbelief. Second, how many pieces, how many loaves of bread do they have in the boat with them? They have one. They've already seen Jesus multiply bread. If they got in any kind of dire situation, they just say, oh, Jesus can make more bread for us. There's no big deal here. It's the second way of unbelief. And third, Jesus is warning them here of eternal life and death, and they are only thinking about their stomachs. Maybe they're a little hangry. We don't know. They're just hungry. Um, We know our physical needs can oftentimes cloud our spiritual eyesight. They're persistent in unbelief, and it must be met with persistent grace. So Jesus rebukes them, and he reminds them. Look at Jesus' rebuke, 17 and 18. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? And then listen to this. 
Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear. If there was any question in our minds if this was about their unbelief, Jesus is clearing that up for us right now because he's saying, you look like the deaf man that I just healed. You're looking like the blind man that we're about to meet. Are your ears deaf and are you blind? Don't you remember what I've done? So there's the rebuke. Now Jesus reminds them. There were thousands, five thousands. We had a few loaves and a few fish. And, and I fed them all. And what was left? Abundance. You took up baskets full, 12 baskets. And remember the 4,000, we only had seven loaves and a few fish. And I fed, I fed all of them and they were all satisfied. And how much did you take up? Seven baskets full, abundance. A little turned into a lot. I am Yahweh who gives bread in the wilderness. Do you not see who I am? Do you not yet understand? So Jesus rebukes them and he reminds them. What's the difference between the Pharisees and the disciples here? Well, one really obvious difference. The disciples are with Jesus. They are his people. And even though they look like the Pharisees right now in their unbelief, Jesus will not only be persistent with them, he will be patient with them. So we can think of why Jesus did this entire repeated miracle. Well, one, just like with a deaf man, there were people who were starving in the wilderness, had no real food to make their way home with, and Jesus had compassion on them, and he fed them. Secondly, Jesus was showing that he is God's salvation that comes to the wilderness and gives life to the wilderness, like Isaiah 35, fulfilling scripture. And third, Jesus is showing his disciples that you are persistent in unbelief and I will persistently show myself to you over and over and over again. And I will be patient with you as well. Look with me at verses 8, 22 through 26, our final episode. Jesus, the patient son of God. And they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him home, saying, do not even enter the village. So here again, we see Jesus' personal and persistent nature clearly. But we also see something else. We see as we've pointed out, his patience. So notice this miracle is almost a repeat of what Jesus did with the deaf and mute man. Let's consider the similarities here between those two accounts. They come to Bethsaida, so once again, we're on the wilderness side, beyond the Jordan, right in line with Isaiah 35 again. 
Second, people bring the blind man. Couldn't bring himself. They bring him, just like people bring the deaf man. And they beg Jesus to touch him. So far, this, a lot of similarities. And again, another similarity, we see Jesus show personal interest and intimacy with this blind, blind man by taking him away from the village, outside of it, privately. In the same way Jesus stooped down to communicate with the deaf and mute man in a way he could understand, here, Jesus takes the hand of a blind man who would not even know where to go if Jesus didn't do this, and led him outside of the village. Jesus is personal. We see the similarity of Jesus spitting. We see that Jesus heals the man, and then Jesus instructs silence again. So we see a lot of parallels here. But these parallels just heighten the differences, right? It throws the differences into even uh, into an even sharper relief. So let's look at a couple of those differences. Here, Jesus, it's hard not to notice, spits in the man's eyes. Have you ever wondered what's going on here? We, we, it's unusual. We don't 100% know what's going on, but we know that Jesus is not, again, doing some kind of magical sorcery-type work here, which has been speculated. Throw that out. So what is going on here? Well, if anything, it's an escalation in how personal this situation is, right? It doesn't get much more personal than having someone's spit on your eyes. Jesus touched and, and, and talked to the deaf and mute man, but here he's actually taking it a step further with the blind man. And another thing I think we should consider is, is where we see spit show up, what it's associated with in Scripture. Most often, most cases, it's associated with shame. Having someone spit on you is a shameful thing. In fact, we will see this happen to Jesus at his Crucifixion, he will be spat upon. So what can, what, what can we connect here? Well, it seems like what we can at least note is that here, spitting is associated with healing. And when we go to the cross, Jesus will be spit upon and it's associated with the healing of souls. We get the healing and Jesus will take the shame. I think that's at least one thing we can see from this. Jesus, in this action, we see pointing to the cross and the shame that he will wear to give healing to people. Third, or second, and probably most surprisingly, a difference here is that Jesus does not heal this man instantly, but he does it in stages. Why does Jesus do this? He, puts it, he says, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Why is Jesus healing this man in stages? Is it a harder case? Is it more difficult for Jesus? I don't think it's those things. So let's just go with 
again, the three reasons we've been highlighting with, with each miracle here. We know one reason Jesus heals this man is out of real love and compassion for this man. 2,000 years ago, there was a blind man in Bethsaida who did not even know where to go. And Jesus, the Son of God, took his hand and led him out of, a, out of the village, spit in his eyes, and healed him. Do you think this man cares about the method Jesus used? Secondly, this fulfills Isaiah 35. Jesus opens blind eyes in the wilderness. Third reason. Jesus does this to show how he will respond to the unbelief that marks his disciples and you and me. Though our eyes have been opened, though we are with Jesus, though God has saved us in Christ, oftentimes the sinful flesh, our unbelief, once again gets the better of us and clouds our vision. We are like this blind man. We don't quite see clearly. The disciples, they they got an idea, but they don't quite see clearly. They still do not fully believe. Do you not yet understand? And Jesus is showing his people, you're like this blind man. You don't fully see clearly yet. But I am not done working on you. You will have your eyesight fully restored. Your spiritual eyes will be fully open, just like this blind man who couldn't see clearly at first, who couldn't see at all at first, then who couldn't see clearly and now fully restored. Jesus is showing his patience with his disciples' unbelief. Jesus is not only personal, Jesus, the Son of God, is not only persistent, he is patient. How can Jesus afford to be so personal, so persistent, and so patient with continued unbelief in his presence? The holy God still has disciples with him that are unbelieving. How can he not just execute just just judgment? Well, he, he does execute just judgment. Jesus' patience is is undying for his people because he died on the cross. He absorbed all of God's wrath that was stored up for every ounce of unbelief of humanity, of his lost people, so that he could be infinitely, inexhaustibly, inexhaustibly patient towards us. When we continue to struggle in our unbelief. Jesus died so that his patience is undying for you and me. So, Jesus is personal, persistent, and the patient son of God. Three observations that call for three gospel applications. First, two and one, come to Jesus with your weaknesses and show the same personal tenderness toward others 
in their weakness as Jesus did. This should not only move us to come to Jesus, even when we don't know what to say, even when we don't know what to think, we come to him knowing that he is going to be personal and loving and welcome us in Christ. And this in turn should move us to be personal and tender and loving to those who are our friends, our family, who we are associated with. Because Jesus speaks to us, God speaks to us in a way that we can understand. We would not even know if he did not. God is personal with us, so we are personal with one another. Second, we're persistent in our fight against unbelief. Jesus, while personal with his disciples, while personal and gentle, he was nonetheless firm and uncompromising in the face of unbelief. He did not let them drift into their unbelief. He rebuked it, exhorted them, and then he reminded them of who he was. We have to be persistent in our battle with unbelief because God is persistent with us in Christ. We have to rebuke and exhort ourselves and then remind ourselves of the gospel. Persistent. This is the Christian walk. We will wrestle with unbelief and sinful flesh. We're humans, fallen but God will continue to do his persistent work and therefore we need to be persistent with ourselves and we are persistent with one another. We do it together. We exhort one another. We rebuke, we remind graciously and it's all to this end to get rid of the unbelief, trusting that God is working through it by his Holy Spirit. That's why we come here on Sunday mornings to exhort and remind ourselves. So we are persistent with ourselves and we're persistent with others. And finally, we are patient with ourselves and with others. Sanctification in our bouts of unbelief. We're patient. We should not expect perfection now. And all of us will be at different stages of our sanctification than others. And many of us will be not far, as far down the road as we would like. We're not all going to be driving at the same speed or rate here. But all of these realities mean this. We must be patient with ourselves and we must be patient with one another. And if you have never come to know Christ in faith, know that he is still showing his patience toward you even now in your unbelief in order to lead you to repentance. This is what patience aims for. Romans 2, 4, do you presume on the riches of, a, of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? This is, this is the destination of patience that we would repent. John Newton captures this well, I think. He says this, as we think about what sanctification looks like in this life, the frustrations it can bring. 
John Newton says, Yet though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, I can truly say, I am not what I once was, a slave to sin and Satan, and I can heartily join with the apostle and acknowledge, by the grace of God, I am what I am. It's God's grace you are where you are today. And it's God's grace that will fully restore your eyesight, your spiritual eyesight. This is the promise of the cross. And so, this sanctification, though a long road and hard for us to see here and now, is a process that has a destination. And again, Newton, I think, captures it beautifully with this quote. He compares our sanctification and progress to that of an oak tree. That's grown. The full grown oak that overtops the the world and spreads its branches wide, it springs from a little acorn. Its daily growth, had it been daily watched from its appearance above ground, would have been imperceptible, yet it was always upon the increase. It has known a variety of seasons, it has sustained many a storm, but in time it attained to maturity. And now is likely to stand for ages. The beginnings of spiritual life are small likewise in the true Christian. He likewise passes through a succession of various dispensations, but he advances, though silently and slowly, yet surely and will stand forever. It's a matter of perspective. We can't see clearly here what everything is, what God is doing through all things, and what our progress in the faith looks like. Sometimes we don't even know if God is right there with us in the process. So how will God respond to his unbelieving people, to you and I, and you and me in our sinful unbelief? He will respond with personal care, persistence, and patience. When you were unbelieving and distant, he was personal and near. When you were persistent in unbelief, he was persistent in correcting you and reminding you who he is. And when you were still unbelieving after all of these things, he was patiently putting his hands back on your eyes and asking, do you see clearly now? Because you will. Because I will restore your blind eyes. And so, what will our response be but that of Isaiah 35.10? We will complete the fulfillment of this prophecy. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, and they shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. You will look back on this winding up and down Christian pilgrimage, your, your progress in the faith that can look like a spiritual EKG at times, and you will see that God was personally, persistently, and patiently with you the entire way. Jesus, the Son of God, reveals this to us. So let us believe this now, see God's glory in Christ now, and let us joyfully sing and joyfully proclaim who he is. Would you pray with me?